the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Down through the years, there have been a lot of very helpful proposals in terms of moving the needle towards um, eventually reversing Roe versus Wade. Some of these ideas have been very helpful and have helped us down through the years um, gain a lot of advancement, a lot of territory, so to speak. Others, not always as helpful. And sometimes you'll have to wonder whether or not it's just a flawed approach to law based on a misunderstanding, or I suppose the um, the more extreme cases could even be a suggestion that it's not really designed to help move the needle in the direction of defending pro-life, but really having just the opposite effect. I won't make a judgment call here, but I will suggest that the Life Appropriation Act may, in fact, not be all that it's cracked up to be. Let's get some insights. We're joined by Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And, uh, Brian, this this thought of the Life Appropriation Act has been knocking around uh, for um, a little over a year now, uh, as memory recalls. Um, and, And some states have seriously considered this. But I understand that there may be aspects of the Life Appropriation Act that are not all that helpful. Clarify for us. Well, thank you, Craig, for for establishing uh, the need to be very wise in how we pursue what we're pursuing, and that is to restore legal protection once again for the unborn child. And I have to remind everyone that our founders, they were not casual when they created our form of government and the principles on which it's built. Now, the Life Appropriation Act, as you said, is a relatively recent new idea that's going to solve the problems. And basically, what it, it says is unique. It asserts that secular humanism is the predicate by which abortion is being put forward, but secular humanism is, in fact, a religion. And therefore, and by the way, I actually agree with that. (laughs) So it's true. In fact, the Supreme Court years ago did find that secular humanism is a religion, as we have often discussed, and anyone who gives any thought to it, even your neighbors who are hardcore secularists will tell you, well, I believe this, and I believe that, and that somehow their opinions are not based in belief, and yet... That's the assertion, and that's what secular humanism is. It's their worldview. So this particular proposal says, well, we can strike these abortion laws and put in new laws because these laws legalizing abortion are based on religious principles. Now, that is a very dangerous argument, because that's exactly the argument that's being used against us. And I've mentioned this many times on your program, because I think it is important that we as Christians realize abortion is not wrong because of my religion. And our founders actually said the same thing. 
It's a self-evident truth. This is objectively a human baby. It's not because I believe that baby's heart starts beating at a certain time. It, you know, uh, it's now measured uh, very, very early. But it is my faith that's made, that is objectively a human heart beating. This is objectively a unique human being according to the laws of nature and of nature's God. And that's what our founders had asserted, that we base laws on natural law, self-evident truths. So both sides now, now with this proposal that's called a pro-life law, if we are attacking secular humanists because they have the wrong religion, and they're asserting their practice of abortion based on this religious worldview, and of course, secular humanism is a religious worldview. We are also, however, giving the predicate that this is a battle over religion. It is not. It's a battle over objective facts. And as I said, that's why we're Christian. I got to tell you, I like Christianity because it's referring to reality. The God who made all of reality is the God that I worship. Now, if I have some theology that goes off base, and some of us do, we're all going to make those theological mistakes, but it doesn't change objective reality. And our founder said, we've got to make laws based on what is objectively true. And that's why the natural law premise of the Constitution and the founding documents and the assertion that every human being has been given the gift of life by a creator. Beyond the fact that there's a creator, there's no more theological discussion. But it's an assertion that there simply is an objective reality that the government didn't create. If we don't make that distinction, then any government that has power has all power. There is no higher law by which to hold it accountable. And that's why we assert our premise on natural law, that we live in an ordered universe. It's the order of the universe that we're asking to be applied. It's not the order of my personal theology. Very important distinction, and one that Christians often make, that that failure to distinguish our personal theologies, and most of the folks I know in the pro-life movement, they have different nuances to their theology. That's okay. This isn't about our theology. It's about the objective reality of a human being that's innocent, that now, since Roe v. Wade, innocent human beings can be killed, and that brings a great cost to society if that vulnerable, innocent person isn't protected under the law then we have lost a great, great protection that needs to be there in a just society. And this perspective, critically important, because we understand that uh, these laws um, are, are certainly given of God. And, and yet, as we engage in the give and take, the dialogue on this topic, it is too easy for the enemies of life to be dismissive if we simply couch the dialogue or the debate in religious terms, that, well, I draw this conclusion because my faith takes me there, because it opens up the door for them to say, aha, religious viewpoint, this is simply an attempt to try and violate the Establishment Clause, and it cannot be had. If, on the other hand, we argue based on natural law, it opens up the door for us to be able to create that firm foundation in which we cannot readily be dismissed out of hand by simply pshawing that it's religion 
as it forms to a fundamental acceptance of what is natural and what is right across all humankind. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. More information on the so-called Life Appropriation Act online at nrlc.org. That's nrlc.org. 6.15 from KFAX, your update now on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you sometimes feel as if you don't get enough respect from your physician, you may not be alone. In fact, a new global study looking at 23 countries show that fully two-thirds of patients feel disrespected by their physicians. For example, about a quarter of them complained that their physicians don't answer questions. Another said that they don't involve them in treatment decisions and often use medical jargon with no explanation. Worse yet, some two-thirds complained that the treatment that they've received from their doctor has done little, if anything, to treat and eliminate the cause of their discomfort and pain. In fact, the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management even raised the question in a white paper entitled, Is Patient Satisfaction a Legitimate Outcome of Pain Management? So why is it that so many patients are dissatisfied with their physicians and their treatment? To help us better understand, we're joined in studio today by Dr. John Duong of the Holistic Health Center and, of course, creator of Healing Habits Now on the web at healinghabitsnow.com. Dot com. And Dr. Duong, why is this? Two-thirds of patients saying that they're dissatisfied with their physician, not only in terms of the engagement, but most importantly, no satisfaction of any relief of pain or their symptoms. Why is that? It's the model that the, uh, people are using in healthcare. That, like, I always ask, do we have a healthcare system or sick care? The model um, that we're using uh, right now is more for like uh, management manage of the disease or patching the problem uh, so one problem and one solution so that's that's very difficult for people to get better what we need to do is that when you have a chronic conditions when you have a chronic condition you need to allow the body to heal from within so we need to have a different approach the medical models is very good for emergency crisis care acute band-aid problem we are number one in the world However, treating chronic conditions such as diabetes, thyroid, chronic back pain, any neuropathy, autoimmune conditions that's considered as chronic, we need to look for some uh, other solutions, which is this, allowing the body to heal from within. That's where you get the results. Why is it that patients tend to tolerate this? I mean, for example, if I went into my mechanic and I said, look, my car is leaking oil. Every morning I get up and there's a big puddle of oil underneath my car, and my mechanic said, that's no problem, I'll fix it, and just poured more oil in, I would, over the course of a period of time, go through probably barrels of oil. Sure, the oil's being replaced. Yes, the engine is still running fine, but we haven't gotten to the core root of the problem. Why is the car leaking oil? So why is it then that physicians can treat the symptoms, mask the pain, do it for years? Is it just that patients have largely believed that this must be the way it's done and they just tolerate it? That's what is being pushed. Mm. So we need to pray for wisdom. We need to have both both worlds, okay? So sometimes, like, the, if you have an emergency crisis, the band-aid approach is a must. However, if you have a long-term conditions, 
and something is not working, the bending approach is not working, what do you have to do? You have to look at the body. What is wrong with my body? And how can I fix my body so my body can fix the problem that I have? So we've largely been using the short-term approach as a long-term approach. It might be okay to top off the oil to get you from point A to point B until the mechanic can get into the engine and find out what's going on. But using that as a permanent solution doesn't work. Likewise, as you're suggesting, when it comes to cases of people dealing with neck pain, lower back pain, um, rheumatoid arthritis, anything that's of the autoimmune deficiency arena, certainly things like diabetes, yes. using that short-term emergency approach, that, that let's patch it approach, might get you over the hump initially, but it's no long-term solution. Yeah, that's what we've seen. That's why people are suffering from chronic condition and they are not getting better. They get frustrated, so they need to search like a natural solution. How can they fix it. Are a so, lot of your patients that come in and see you that are dealing with knee pain, diabetes, some of these other symptoms that we've talked about, do you get the sense that they're sort of on the edge, that they're basically feeling as if they've run out of all their other options and they're really frustrated because there have been no concrete answers, no real solutions offered to them? Yeah, most patients come and see me are having a chronic conditions. They are quite frustrated because they don't have the solution. That's the reason they come and get a consultation from me. And your approach is very different in that you get to not only exploration of what the underlying cause is that's creating the symptom, you seek out long-term solutions. And one of the other things that seems to be unique about your approach to medicine, and that is this notion that first and foremost, we have to help the body heal itself. Yes, you have to go and see what's wrong with the body and how can the body heal itself. So what's wrong with the body? So that's the first question that we need to ask. We've talked about some of the symptoms. Uh, one of your patients that came in recently complaining of chronic back and neck pain, which is common for a lot of folks these days, as well as diabetes. She had some difficulty in both the, that arena. Before we hear from her, what was going on when she first came in to see you? How severe was it? Um, diabetes, she's on, um, on insulin, some, take some medication to control her blood sugars. What we need to do is that we need to understand what is the reason that her blood sugar is high. So what we need to do is we under need to understand the weakness of the body. Where's the weakness coming from? There's a lot of inflammatory process that is affecting it. So the food can be one of their inflammatory process. What we do, how we different is that we do genetic testing to find out where is your weakness in terms of the inflammatory process. So where's the inflammation coming from? Why is the inflammation damaging the body? So we need to understand that. Another in inflammation process that is extremely important is autophagy. Autophagy means that your body needs to recycle the old cells so they can make uh, new cells. So if you do have a genetic issue on, on your genetic in terms of autophagies, you, it can lead into diabetes and a lot of neurological issue. So we need to understand where is the issue from, um, from your system that we can see in the genetic makeup. I've been in this clinic for some time and I've been feeling better now. My back and my neck is getting cured and my diabetic is always uncontrolled now. And I thank and praise the Lord for giving me this opportunity to this clinic 
to have this medical treatment and for sure it will give us a good uh, result. I thank uh, the doctor here for giving me all the necessary equipment and necessary medicine so that I could achieve the result that I want to, to be free from diabetic and free from illnesses sicknesses of my back pain and my neck pain. How about your feet? My feet is getting better now. I still have a little cramp, not like before. Um, especially at night. I usually uh, have some a little bit. Not before it's too bad. Now I could walk freely and I could uh, run freely and I could uh, do other lot of things now. Thank you. So you're addressing not just the symptoms, addressing the cause, the root cause of the symptoms, yes. and looking at the genetics behind it that may be contributory either to the cause and effect of the symptoms the patient is dealing with or the, the genetic reasons why the body heretofore has not been able to properly heal itself. That is very straightforward because that's black and white because your, your gene, you understand your gene, you understand your weakness, so now you can support in the body. So another thing that we deal with with the patients, not only the genetic that we use, um, is also like helping patients to understand their stress level. Whenever you have stress, what happens to stress? It's a major cause of diseases because when you have stress, what happens to your blood sugars? It goes up. When you're upset, what happened? Your blood sugars fly up, okay? How do you fix your mind? How can you have a healing heart? We always said that the cheerful heart is the best medicine. That's Proverbs 17:22. People understand that by words, but the feeling is not there, the heart. Understanding that. So how can you help to change your mind? I coach my patients is that if you cannot change your environment you can always always change yourself from within okay so you it's your, it's your thought process so once you're able to control your stress level when the stress level is not affecting you then you're not going to react to the environment so that's that helps the patients and we've certainly can, seen this borne out in uh, clinical studies that have demonstrated a direct connection between, for example, how a patient reacts to treatment for cancer based on their attitude of their mind, their sense of outlook on life, how positive they may be or how negative they may be. And their ability to respond positively seems to be so much better when it travels that distance, as you say, between the head to the heart and there's a sudden heart change and a change in the outlook. Definitely, it's the mind. The mind is the, is the source of controlling. If you believe that your body can heal, then the body will help you to heal. If you don't think it can heal, then it won't be healed. We need to understand where is the healing coming from. It's your body. You have the permission to heal. It's, it's inside. So not only I help the patient to understand the body, the weakness of the body by genetic testing, understand how do you control the mind, your joyfulness. How do you have a cheerful heart? That's the best medicine. So those are the things that we need to assist the patients in the right direction so they can relax, they can um, reducing the stress level. So now, now the body is in an optimal position so the body can heal. So you have to look at the arenas. One of our missions, I write it out so that every one of our staff members and doctors can understand what do we do? We create a healing habits. 
which allowed the body, the mind, and the soul to heal from within. As a result, our patients to live a better quality life. So what we have to do is that we have to consistently using a habit to program our mind to be to be cheerful, to be positive. If you don't program your mind to be cheerful, what happens? The negativity will c- come and control your life. That's where stress comes in. And certainly a change in habit and a change in approach made a big difference for the patient that we just heard from a moment ago, who initially came in to see Dr. Duong complaining of chronic back and neck pain and long-term diabetes problem. She now has finally found relief from the pain, and most importantly, her diabetes for the first time is under control. If you've heard a symptom or a scenario that describes where you're at today in our conversation with Dr. John Duong, and you think, that's me, where do I go? How can I find some help? Well, today, Dr. Duong is offering a $47 consultation for the first eight callers who qualify, for you or someone you know that's been dealing with chronic pain for years and years and has been dissatisfied with the treatment that they've received, maybe it's time to find a new way to combat pain. Getting more information available on the web, simply go to HealingHabitsNow.com. That's HealingHabitsNow.com. Or to take advantage of that $47 consultation available for the first eight callers who qualify, a $287 value for just $47, call 510-818-1668. That's 510-818-1668. Or log on to HealingHabitsNow.com. Dr. Duong from the Holistic Health Center, we appreciate your time today. Thank you. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is the largest and fastest growing segment of the United States population typically called the baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, comprising some 80 million Americans, and our numbers are being added to by 10,000 every day. Imagine that 10,000 Americans hit retirement age every single day. As we experience the grain of America, the big question is, how do we go about capturing this amazing block of individuals, not only in terms of harnessing their, their collective talents and skills and ability and brain power and, and ministry abilities, but then, too, how can we most adequately minister to the needs of this growing sector of the population that, you know, as for all of us that are heading toward uh, the twilight years, you begin to think about the life that you've led, think about... Um, the shortness of the time that you have left and questions with regard to the the significance of your life and ultimately being heaven-bound. Insights on the issue of renewing ministry for and by seniors. We're joined tonight by Dr. Michael Parker. He is co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church. And uh, we appreciate so much uh, your time tonight, Dr. Parker, and being with us uh, to talk a bit about this important topic. Well, thank you. Your background includes that of adjunct associate professor of the Division of Geriatric Medicine and uh, Care <clears throat> pardon me, at the Center for Aging at the University of Alabama in Burning, uh, Birmingham. We have two centers for aging here in Alabama, one affiliated with our medical school, and then we have a center for mental health and aging at the, at the University of Alabama. 
So UAB is actually a separate university with a you know very uh, and with an outstanding uh, department of uh, division of geriatric medicine. So I have a joint appointment. This background, of course, uniquely qualifies you to speak to this topic of just how well churches are equipped in ministering to uh, not just the needs of the aging population, but then, as the book also suggests, how to harness this amazing subset of our culture. I I think that's part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem. I think it's a, a wonderful gift from our Heavenly Father that He's given prolonged life, and yet it seems like we, we haven't kept, you know, captured that yet. And so what we want to do is, is think about ministry from seniors first, and then during that final season of life, ministry to them. If you think about one demographic, it um, if you make it to 65 on average, and these are just general averages, but if you make it to 65 and you're a woman, you might live another, typically you'll live another 19 years. And four to five of those years might be years of dependency where you need some help. Uh, if you're a man, you, on average, you live uh, not quite as long, another 15 years, and three of those years might be years of dependency. Um, for, you know, Billy Graham has just written a book called uh, Nearing Home, and in the opening introduction, he, he writes, All my life I was taught how to die as a Christian, but no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. I wish they had because I'm an old man now and believe it. it. Believe me, it's not easy. And I think that part of the problem is that uh, we need to capture that vision that we need our seniors. We want to issue a call out there and say we need you. And uh, and then there are very specific things over the 12 to 15 years that we've been doing research with congregations that can form the basis of a ministry um, but the, the basic idea is to have ministry from seniors. Um, it's interesting uh, how I became involved in, in geriatrics and gerontology. I actually was was on active duty, and uh, I was uh, assigned to Seventh Medical Command. I had great responsibilities. It was right in the middle of uh, right in the beginning stages of Desert Storm, and my father passed away. And so I came back to the funeral, and when I flew back to 7th Medical Command, they had a memorial service for my father. And I realized that a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform um, had similar issues, you know, aging parent issues from a distance. And so I um, uncovered this wonderful National Institute of Aging Postdoctoral Fellowship at Michigan. I applied and got accepted and then I had to apply, and then the Lord had to do some great things, and I had to apply for a long-term civilian training from the Army Medical Department, and I got that. And then as things wind down in the military, you have to kind of iron out your assignments a year out. And uh, my colleagues in psychiatry said, Parker, you're going to do a child and family fellowship at Walter Reed. And I said, well, I'm not I'm not going, <laughs> and uh, I want to go to Michigan and... and uh, and they, you know, basically said, we're a young army and, and you're going to have to do the fellowship at Walter Reed or you put your career in jeopardy. So somebody said I should go talk to my boss. And uh, this was a two-star general who had the weight of the world on him. And uh, we were responsible for medical care for Desert Storm. And uh, when I went in to see him, he mirrored the, the ideas of the, you know, psychiatrist, my colleagues. And then he said, what are you going to do there? And I said, I'm going to, you know, thank you for coming to my father's memorial service. 
And I told him what I just shared with your listeners uh, that, you know, I was interested in studying caregiving and particularly distant caregiving and his whole countenance changed. And he said, I just got a call from Iowa from my family priest. And he said, your mother is leaving the gas on the stove. What do you want to do? And you see, here you have um, captured in his story what's going on almost across the country nationwide, particularly for those who care for aging parents from a distance. And he said, you know, he wanted to honor his country with his service and that he'd been training all of his life for, and yet he wanted to honor his mother. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenging, uh, significant life event that most people at midlife face, and it's something we need to prepare for. And so we talk a little about that in the book. And um, so that's how I got involved. Uh, he said, tell those gentlemen that you are going to Michigan, and the next day, you know, they congratulated me for sticking to my guns. And, and off I went for a wonderful postdoc in Michigan, which changed my life, you know, and my professional trajectory. So. That's a quick intro into how I got into this. You know, the amazing thing is that we see so much focus these days on uh, health care issues for seniors and uh, approaching that aspect of the physical needs of uh, the, the grain segment of American population. And yet there's so little spoken of when it comes to meeting to uh, meeting the spiritual needs. And we're going to spend some time focusing on that when we come back after a brief timeout. Dr. Michael Parker is with us tonight. As you hear, a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army, serving now as associate professor at the School of Social Work and Mental Health and Aging, the University of Alabama, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. When we come back, how do you uniquely meet the spiritual needs of seniors? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking about the grain of America tonight, 80 million of us in that generation called the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, and as some 10,000 of us every single day reaches retirement age, it begs the question, how do we go about focusing on ministering to this unique and growing segment of the population, not only in terms of, of harnessing the talent, skills, and abilities that they have, uh, as con- active contributors to the church and ministry in the body of Christ. But then, too, what about ministering to their needs? There's lots of focus these days, of course, about health care and, and uh, care services for the elderly and the aging. As much as we talk about the physical needs, though, what about this aspect of meeting their unique spiritual needs. We're talking about that in this segment of the program with us, Dr. Michael Parker, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. Let's talk about this. You know, every church uh, pretty much anywhere in America has a youth ministry or a young singles group. Are we going to see the day, Dr. Parker, when many churches will also have an older adults ministry? Yes. In fact, uh, a lot of people kind of age out of youth ministry into senior ministry uh, from our experience. Uh, but the, the problem is that we're not addressing it systemically in our, in our seminaries and we're not preparing people for, that, for the fact that people are living so long. And so that's kind of an area we've been working on. And if, if you look at something even um, as challenging as a disaster like Katrina or the recent F5 tornadoes that we had come through Tuscaloosa, seniors... Um, 
uh, are hit more severely because of that. Uh, roughly 70% of the casualties from Katrina, 60 to 70%, were seniors. And 80% of those dear people belong to congregations. And so one of the responsibilities the church has, I believe deacons and elders, is to make sure that we have kind of a, a safety net to older people prepare for the kind of disasters that might be characteristic of the geography where you are. Um, I lived in Monterey for a while, and I know some of the dangers you face out there. And really, I think you know, our deacons really need to take responsibility for making sure that our seniors are safe you know, in the, in the event of a disaster. Uh, here in Tuscaloosa, where the F5 tornadoes hit, in one uh, church alone, we had four deaths um, related to the tornadoes, and they weren't directly related. They were indirectly related in the sense that they were affected by the consequences and the dislocation of the tornado, and they didn't adjust well. So that's just one small area that I think churches can step up, um, helping. The, you, you were talking about some of the statistics. You know, some would argue that one in two over 80 will suffer from dementia, and roughly two-thirds of those will be Alzheimer's disease. And we're diagnosing that um, awful disease earlier and earlier now. What does someone do with that knowledge that, you know, they're basically going to lose their memory? And for a Christian, it's the loss of memory of God, their memories of God, their memories of Scripture. What assurances can we give them? And so the co-author on our book, uh, Jim Houston, who, by the way, was mentored by C.S. Lewis at Oxford, wonderful scholar, uh, the most joyful Christian at 88 that I know, and brilliant, has you know, helped me write a chapter on kind of a, a theology of dementia. And he would say that we need to reassure anyone who's been diagnosed, and I'm cutting to the basic idea, is that they're remembered of God and they can trust Him. And that's just one nuance, again, of how we might develop some ministry. Do we also need to see, you made reference to the issue of seminaries and schools that are preparing pastors and those for full-time ministry. Do we need to see the beginnings of development, Dr. Parker, of unique ministries? Because I think of the needs, as you say, of whether you're ministering to people who are Alzheimer's patients or their loved ones, uh, those that are just, even as the longevity tables do what they do, and we're seeing people living longer and longer. I mean, the growing number of centarians, for example, right. in America is, is significant. The needs that they have is not just like treating the older end of the demographic within our congregation. Well, pastor's in his 60s. Surely he can help meet the needs and, and pray for and care for somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. That may not be necessarily the case, especially as we see folks that are 90 and centarians. Absolutely. And, of course, these people are not able to travel. Um, they have mobility issues often and some frailness. And the church can be a part of helping people age successfully, by the way, to look at it on the, uh, from a positive point of view. We can help people avoid disease and disability. We can help them kind of maximize their cognitive and physical fitness. We can help them be more actively engaged in ministry and in life. I think all our congregations can do a better job of asking our senior saints to pray for ministry and to engage in Holy Spirit-led ministry in the latter stages of life. Uh, you look at examples like Dr. Houston and Dr. Graham, who were um, who 
their notion of retirement is not age graded. You know, we we live in a very age graded uh, society, and our seminaries are not immune from that, nor our churches. We think we we go to school, we go to work, and then we retire. But the truth is, we if we're lifelong learners, we go to school our entire lives. Uh, we really work our entire lives, and and you know, so the these are structures that are really lifelong. So we we go to school, we work, and we um, um, need to take respites along the way. So those concepts really don't work, and the church needs to challenge, you know, to provide kind of a countercultural perspective on the value of life in the final stages, and be involved in helping develop uh, caregiver support programs, uh, helping churches partner that are too small to manage these programs, help us, uh, you know, do some late life planning, end of life, aging in place initiatives, uh, helping people prepare for uh, uh, caregiving, and now we're talking about you know, middle-stage adults who are worried about their aging parents, and then challenging the, the elderly to engage with their young adult children about their, li- their long-term care plans. The long-term care industry in this country is broken, and it's in trouble. And, you know, when you look at the statistics that suggest we have more people over the age of 65 than we have 18 and younger, those uh, demographics are not going to change. And so it's kind of the elephant on the table, and we, we have to help the church embrace it. And the good news that these senior saints are around, these elders are long, around longer and can help us. So, you know, involving them in uh, small group life so that they're nurturing and loving younger people, um, uh, witnessing to the power of Christ in their lives, uh, and maybe setting up kind of a life review ministry so that you're capturing these stories of these wonderful senior saints and putting it to film. And there's a lot of work being done in that area. And we know from uh, our research that when someone completes a life review in the right way, it's an antidepressant. And so when somebody listens to your story and your story of faith, it really is uh, encouraging to that person and affirming and uh, there are all kinds of lessons there that can be learned and applied by younger generations. Developing a vision for the aging church, renewing ministry for and by seniors. New book co-authored by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Dr. Michael Parker. The new book, by the way, published by University Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And Dr. Parker, thanks so much for the time and the insights. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.